0: And Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined in the studio by the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, which is comprised of Hampshire and Franklin counties, Dave Sullivan. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're a political person. I don't know how to put that to you, but it was, we're just going to go with that for just, sure. just a moment. And I would like your perspective on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy being ousted as the speaker yesterday. Let's start there with a bit of a fish wrap. Join us for our fish wrap, District Attorney Dave Sullivan.
2: Well, that's not the way to treat a newspaper, is fish wrap. (laughs) (laughs) I won't comment on the newspaper you're reading. But it is the way to treat a district attorney. Uh, Yes. Um, It's unprecedented that a speaker's never been removed in the middle of their um, appointment by the the caucus, in this case, the Republican caucus. So we're on very
1: unprecedented grounds. I would love to understand this better, and we'll ask uh, Congressman Jim McGovern when he's with us on the show tomorrow. The Speaker, the, the role, the position of Speaker of the House is now vacant. Does that mean that no bills can come to the House because without a Speaker to put the bills before the House, they can't consider it? why is it chaos? I guess that's a better question. Well,
2: they have a temporary uh, speaker at the present moment, I guess, I, I, in temporary, I think it's called. And so his name is uh, Patrick McHenry. So he, he controls the House as this temporary speaker. So they can still proceed with uh, with things. But the chaos is that they don't really have a leader. So there's going to be a lot of friction between just the Republicans as to who their next leader will be. And it was 15 ballots that it took to, to get Speaker McCarthy in there, and I don't know how many ballots there will be to
1: have the next one. But why do we care that much? I mean, I understand that Speaker of the House is a constitutional position. It is in the succession for the presidency. It is an important role. I understand that. What I don't understand is why we care that much whether it's vacant or not. Why not have a temporary? Who cares? Well, apparently well, <clears throat> the entire media world does but and the political world but I'm really not so clear what difference it makes what happens
2: uh, with a speaker whether they're weak or they're strong they control the legislative agenda and in this case the Repub- Republicans have a majority so they control what goes through committees what goes uh, onto the floor for a vote and that's very important because the most recent uh, decision uh, was to put a bill before the Congress so the government could keep going. And so you're looking at November 15th, is there going to be a speaker that can stand up and say, hey, we need to continue our government. We can't have people like, for example, the U.S. military service members, they don't get paid when there's a government shutdown. Congress gets paid, but they don't.
1: <laughs>
2: Congress gets paid. I they get know. paid in a shutdown. U.S. service members and many of the, all, actually almost all of, except for maybe a few essential, um, you no, know, when they say a few, but essential workers, go unpaid, including air
1: traffic controllers.
2: Yeah, I mean, but they're required, you know, to to work. You know, there, there are those essential positions, but they'll get paid if they. If they show up,
1: Uh, those are because they're essential workers. Go back to the politics of the Steve Sullivan. Do you think this helps Democrats in the congressional elections of twenty twenty four? Yes, absolutely.
2: I mean, you need a stable government. I mean, that's what the financial markets look for, and that's what the American public wants. They want people that go there, get the job done, and and make compromises when necessary.
3: Right, but I'm not sure if in the short run it's going to help the Democrats. That is, we might end up with a Jim Jordan kind of speaker of the House that Democrats cannot work with um, uh, until the next election.
2: The American public's smart. I think they'll make a decision as to who's in favor of their government working in an efficient and uh, forward-thinking way and those that want to kind of take it into the drain. Because we have people that are in Congress that are anti-government. Well, you can't be anti-government and be a member of Congress. It's just not right.
1: Well, Dave Sullivan, going back to the statement you just made that the American voters are smart, I want to turn to the question of Donald Trump, and in particular, the gag order that has been imposed on him. I'm wondering if you have, as district attorney, you have any familiarity with gag orders here in the Northwestern District, Franklin or Hampshire County, or across the state for that matter. It's really unusual, and it does go into this unexplored, uncharted territory of First Amendment rights of a defendant. So tell us your perspective about the gag order on Trump. We've never had a
2: gag order in, in our district since I've been here, and I don't recall anything in the in the past. Uh, as I understand it, of course, Donald Trump is in New York on a fraud trial that he had. Uh, a civil fraud trial. Civil fraud trial. And he went after a clerk uh, in the court. And the judge uh, didn't feel that was appropriate, that he go after um, a member of the... Go after
1: him on Trump, on
2: on, on his website, on his... Exactly. And so the gag... Truth truth social. Yes. So the gag order doesn't stop him from talking about a lot of other things, but just about the pending litigation. And uh, the judge is looking at, hey, are you trying to prejudice uh, this proceeding, or that he felt that it was maybe threatening in nature. I don't know what the exact ruling was, because I haven't read the order. But, um, you know, he just wants to keep Donald Trump um, in that box, so to speak, not to be speaking about the uh, a member of the judicial branch, so to speak. So I, I think that was the the narrow ruling was, hey, don't talk about – This case while it's pending.
1: Well, he didn't even say don't. The judge, I'm sorry, not he. The judge, they did not talk. Say don't talk about the case. The judge said, "Don't talk about my clerk, my staff, my staff." that's that's not. That's that's a pretty limit. Yeah, and and that this is not a newsworthy person. Your First Amendment rights to talk about all sorts of things are not being infringed upon. This person is not a newsworthy, not a public figure, and these sound a lot like threats which gets me to my next question for you, Mr. District Attorney, which is when do threats become criminal? Trump has made a lot of threats. Most of them are not, in fact, criminal. Can you help explain to our listeners when does a threat cross the line from being protected First Amendment speech to a crime?
2: Well, I think the the ability to carry out the threat would be one factor. The other was... Um, you know, is this just hyperbole? Is it just talking about you know uh, somebody, uh, but not explicitly saying I'm going to kill them or I'm going to hurt them? Uh, so you know, we have a very broad um, interpretation of the First Amendment, which we should have. It's it's within um, our Constitution, and it's it's given very broad reach. So so threats usually there's got to be an ability to carry out that. Well, threat.
3: DA uh, David Sullivan in. In this case, we've seen a number of situations. Like, for example, Trump made comments about Nancy Pelosi. Three days later, Nancy Pelosi's husband in his 80s was attacked in his home with a hammer by a Trump follower. There's been several situations. We can go back to Charlottesville where somebody ran over somebody and killed somebody uh, after Trump had made some comments that there's good people on both sides. Sometimes he's not... Like inducing people expressly to do something, however, at what point is it foreseeable enough that he should not be saying attacking people individually because his followers are off the rails?
2: It's hard to say. He says really outlandish things on occasion, and if somebody with mental illness or is deranged um, acts, it's you can almost say it's almost foreseeable. But you know, I think the situation with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, if that was, I don't, I don't know if the individual who committed uh, that particular act ever said it was because of Trump or inspired by Trump. That'd be interesting if that uh, was the case. Uh, but you could say January 6 was inspired by Trump as well.
3: But we know we learned we all learned in, in law school about fighting words and in yes. inciting violence through your words. And I always, I think Bill's question is a great question. I'm always wondering, did he go far enough to really? be able to say you incited this knowingly you intended for this to happen. right
2: it's it's vague. you know he's the master of you know kind of that that those vague terms but certainly the way that it gets interpreted by other people can be argued that it's inspiring to them
1: inflammatory rhetoric has long been part of the american political uh way of doing business yeah. and in and of itself it's Simply First Amendment protected yep. and hyperbole is and uh, all sorts of calls for action. And I think the point that you make, which is, does the person who is being encouraged, is that person being specifically encouraged, not a general political statement? There's a difference between my going up to Dave, Dave Sullivan, you do this, and my standing on a soapbox on the corner making a speech and you hear me. It's different. Yes. And then, of course, there's the question of does the person who is... Uh, uh, potentially guilty of the crime of of, uh, trying to commit a crime, uh, whether that person has the ability to do it. Because if I say, go do something bad, um, probably not a crime. No. Uh, Go do something bad, here's a gun, (laughs) that's a crime on my part.
3: Right, but in between is Proud Boys, Stand Down and Stand By, and then January 6th. Happens and Proud Boys have been convicted. Yeah, but what
1: does that? What did that mean?
3: Well, it means that he's indicted for specifically that. For part of part of the indictment involves whether or not he was inducing people, and his silence was encouraging people
1: to do bad things on January. Yeah, but 6. if that's all he did, it's not a crime, in my opinion. It's just, just, it's not. It, it doesn't mean anything. Unfortunately, very much. silence is not a crime.
4: So, <laughs>
2: <Yes. clears throat> we all were aghast at it, and if you use the word. Was it presidential? Looking at over 230 years of precedence, it wasn't. But that's not a crime. Yeah,
3: to
1: which he would say, hey, listen, I was inducing peacefulness. I said, stand back. Stand by. Fine. Stand back. It's all for the public good. I mean, he will make that claim. Uh, I, I, I would like to know more about what you think about the charges against – that have been brought against the, 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 the former president. Dave Sullivan, you want to make a comment on that that you can stand by and stand back on?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think we talked about it the last time. I mean, there's a number of indictments that are out there. Uh, You know, you've got uh, the ones in Georgia over the election. There's, you know, January 6th. I don't know, Bill. It's hard to keep track of. Well, his, he's got he's uh, got four
1: four four criminal. Is it forty five different?
2: Uh, ninety one counts. counts. Yeah,
1: ninety one yeah. counts. Four different jurisdictions. He's got the uh, case in Florida having to do with uh, the uh, protect records that he took with him from yep. the White House. He has the Georgia case, a very widespread racketeering claim. He has the federal indictment in, in D.C. and he has the New York uh, cover-up payments, uh, payments in New York uh, having to do with storming downs. He's got four different jurisdictions yeah. with criminal charges, and that doesn't begin to get to the civil problems he has regarding in civil litigation. He's involved in with the New York uh, Attorney General and with uh, the woman who has first received a five million dollar judgment for the sexual assault he yeah. committed against her, again in a civil trial. I mean. He is up to his ears in uh, civil and criminal litigation. Well, I'd say one thing. The attorney
2: should get paid up front (laughs) because he's he's known for
1: not paying all
2: his
3: bills uh,
2: given – what do you have, four or five?
3: I I love when a district attorney worries about how we get paid.
1: (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Dave Sullivan for the defense. (laughs) I, I, I love it. We are indeed speaking with Dave Sullivan who is the district attorney for the Northwestern District. That's Franklin and Hampshire counties when we come back. We're going to see what kind of an answer I can get to the question of, what can you tell us about the Rentala trial? Mm. We'll be right back.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
5: It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Miss Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
3: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
6: It's family fun and football for Band Day back at McGurk Alumni Stadium this Saturday at 12 o'clock. Join UMass football as high school bands from all over New England perform at halftime with the power and class of New England, the Minutemen Marching Band. October 7th is also Pride Day where we recognize and embrace the diversity of our campus and community. After the football game, head over to the Mullen Center to see Massachusetts Hockey take on AIC at 7 o'clock. For tickets, visit umassathletics.com tickets. We'll see you on October seven.
0: You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP.
7: Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415.
0: When you hear the keyword, just go to whmp.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with District Attorney David Sullivan. We did that during the break. We want to bring our listeners in on that conversation. Buzz, you had mentioned a piece involving Nancy Pelosi. You want to share that with us? It's a really extraordinary piece. As people know, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, was removed, and
3: every speaker, apparently, I didn't know this, has a short list of uh, people who can act as speaker should they become disabled or should the position become vacant. And in this case, a close ally of Kevin McCarthy was the first name on his short list, and that name was Patrick McHenry, uh, North Carolina uh, representative. Um, Patrick McHenry, on, in Politico last night, I read it about 8.30, and the article was printed in Politico that said his first act as acting speaker was to order Nancy Pelosi out of her what's called the hideaway office. So... Former speakers and uh, people who have important positions that need a whole lot of space, they have these corridors which are quiet. They're called hideaway offices, and they're larger for ex-speakers like she did for Dennis Hester Hester when she uh, succeeded him, so that all those huge records and how people vote, all that sort of stuff, there's a place to keep them in their office. Well, he ordered at 8.30 last night that she vacate the office. By this morning, because it's going to be rekeyed in whatever positions were not removed, she would lose possession of her possessions in her office, and she would no longer have that hideaway office. She happened to, at the time that the email was sent by uh, P- Patrick uh, McHenry, was at the memorial service for Dianne Feinstein in California. So immediately, what happened is it turned out that Hakeem Jeffries, the uh, minority, Um, Leader in the house He put his staff on it They went over and they moved all of her stuff out Into a tiny little office That she was relegated to So that the acting speaker Can have more space He said it's the first time in U.S. history That a speaker who was a former speaker Who's still serving Didn't have a hideaway office It's the most vindictive thing And if that isn't a window into what the Republican Party Looks like right now I don't know what is
1: Mean small-minded, vindictive, irrational, nasty. There are a lot of adjectives. It's the lack of civility.
2: You know, there are votes, there are formal procedures, but the bottom line is we're human beings, and I don't care if it's Nancy Pelosi or a Republican or you didn't like him, but, you know, you deserve that amount of grace and and dignity uh, for our former state. And
3: the other thing, you know, I, I run for office every, every year, and there's only like, you know, 1,400 voters in, in my little town that vote for me. You have a very large number of people who vote for you and have voted for you to put you in office. Well, each of those representatives, there's 760,000 people they represent. That commands respect. Like them or not, there's three-quarters of a million people that they represent in our House of Representatives. And shame on you, Patrick
1: McHenry. As Bill said, you're a very small individual. Yeah. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, I'd like to turn to the uh, Car Rental case. And uh, uh, this is radio, so words like no comment don't, don't really actually get us very far. But I would like to uh, ask, you, are you going to talk to us about Car Rental's case?
2: No, I really can't talk about it. It's uh, in the middle of the... Deliberations, and we'll just wait until the verdict comes in, and then I can speak to you more fully.
1: All right, let me try. <laughs> there was a uh, news report on the front page of the Gazette, I think two days ago, um, about the three jurors being replaced. So that part's public. Can you comment on that or give us some insight as to when, for those of our listeners who don't know the story, what happened? Why were three jurors replaced? And why did the judge then instruct the jury to do something that seems a little odd, perhaps, to some people, which is those of nine of you who have been deliberating, forget it, wipe it off from your mind, and start over. Explain that to us. Uh,
2: the judge ruled it was for personal reasons. I'll leave it at that. Um, and then in any uh, jury... Uh, whether it's assault or wherever it is in district or superior court, when you have to put an alternative juror uh, on that panel of 12 or in district court 6, it's very important that that person doesn't come in midway and not have that opportunity to hear or to view all that evidence because it's very important for both the defense and the prosecution that they have a full picture uh, of the case before they make a decision about guilt or not guilt. So it's really important that you start over because you want them to see those sh- threads of evidence. Uh, you can't assume that they oh geez you know the uh, the eleven other people they know what's going on they'll they'll instruct so and so they should have that opportunity to start anew, and and so that's why that happens. Um, and you know the destruction of uh, particular notes I think guarantees that they aren't just going from th- those notes but actually. And that person wants to be heard. You know, they could bring up really important issues, uh, how they view the evidence uh, may be completely different than those other 11 people, and that's a good thing.
1: Let me just one follow-up. I know Buzz wants to follow up with you too, but I have this question. I don't get it. I've seen this happen. I've been involved in a situation like this. I don't understand how jurors who have been deliberating with each other for, say, four days, talking eight hours a day, and then are instructed, well, start over. I mean... How do you start over? Every the nine of them have been participating. You can't sort of wipe that from your mind. I understand it's a nice idea, but yeah, how does it actually I, but work? But I don't think
2: the instruction says wipe it out of your mind. It just allows for that new, or in this case, three new, uh, you know, jury members uh, to be able to go through that evidence, that stack, you know, and you know, this was, uh, if for example, you know, two weeks of trial, then you know, maybe they want to look at, uh, you know, something. Uh, in particular. But, you know, I think it all works out for the best. You know, when it all comes down to it, by the way, jurors are very serious about their duties. I've never heard of a jury that didn't take it seriously, and we should take it seriously uh, that each of those members of the jury is fully informed before they make a decision.
3: Bill's question, I just want to embellish Bill's question a little bit, because I can't tell you how many times a layperson has said to me, when the judge admonishes... The judge rules on an objection and sustains an objection and then turns to the jury and say, you may not consider that which they just heard come out of a witness's mouth. And so many of us think, can a jury really forget what they just heard from a witness's mouth when they were paying attention? What do you say as a trial attorney and also as a district attorney?
8: Well,
2: some things they hear, they can't extinguish. And that's why the cases are sometimes dismissed for mistrial or on appeal, that that particular comment or piece of evidence that that was spoken you, you know usually from the stand that does that, that could derail the whole trial um but you, you just trust that that jury is going to agree hey that whatever was said is not going to be considered when we go into the jury room and, and they're instructed before they go into that jury room to deliberate um that you know any comments that were stricken or any evidence that you know any objections that were sustained you know, don't consider any of that. So, but yeah, it's, it, it's a hard thing. You can't ask for people to have Alzheimer's. You know, that 10 minutes you just heard, you know, shouldn't have been heard. So, you know, you have to just trust in the jurors to do the right thing uh, by the instructions that are given by the judge.
1: But we sometimes ask jurors or the courts ask jurors to do the nearly impossible, which is forget you just heard from a witness. Oh, the defendant said to me, he did it. And and the judge says, no, please ignore that last comment. I mean, it's nearly. Wasn't there something from Saturday Night Live? Never mind. Who's the one? That's used? <laughs> <laughs> Never Gilda, mind. Gilder Gilda Radner. Gilda
2: Radner. was that it? Yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, and it just you know, that's the way it goes. It's it's unfortunate when it happens, and you know you just trust in that jury, and you know uh, this jury, you know these jurors that they, they're dedicating their their lives to.
3: You know, making the right decision and and doing the right thing. So I know, think it's I, really important that the evidence that they consider be lawfully put before them. Exactly. And I think that they, they tend to understand that those things which were inappropriately put before them should not be part of their consideration. But yeah. you know, we all know that we're all human, yeah,
1: yeah. And let's not forget the story that was, I think, front page on the it was in the Republican yesterday of someone who's been in prison for 39 years for a murder. Found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. All the appeals exhausted. Everyone said fair trial. Everything was done great. Except that he didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, we really appreciate your time being with us every month. Thank you so very much for coming in today, particularly at this time. I know your office is really busy. And we're going to hold you to this After the verdict comes in, you said you'll come back and talk to us, regardless of what it is, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We got a word out from the DA. Congratulations to us. Way to go. I wrote down exactly. Okay, got it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. For
0: Talk the Talk, with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Last night, the two women competing to be the next mayor of Greenfield discussed their platforms at a forum hosted by GCTV. Incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner opened the forum touting her accomplishments.
8: And what has happened under my leadership? We now have a new skate park to be enjoyed by skaters of all ages. We have expanded zoning for manufacturing, which will bring living wage jobs. We have created more than 100 new housing units in our downtown with the redevelopment of Wilson's and with the Well Street uh, shelter, which is run by CSO.
7: Virginia DeSorger, the precinct three city councilor running to unseat the mayor said love for her neighbors and a desire to address issues important to them
5: motivated her to run for mayor. I am running for mayor because when I look at this city I see people, families, the elderly, those who struggle daily to put food on the table and have meaning in their lives.
7: Last night's forum, moderated by Buzz Eisenberg, was the only opportunity to hear the mayoral candidates answer questions before the election on November 7th. A long-awaited promise soon to be realized on Beacon Hill as Governor Maura Healy signs a massive tax relief bill later this afternoon. This was a campaign promise for the Haley administration and has been in the works since before they started their campaign. The bill is expected to provide $561 million for tax relief for the fiscal year 2024 and will grow to a total impact of more than $1 billion by 2027.
9: Mostly sunny skies today, warm with a high of 82 to 86 and a light breeze. Variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 52 to 58. Some patchy fog is possible in the morning. Otherwise, a partly the mostly sunny day tomorrow, a high of 76 to 80. Rain potentially for Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Last summer,
10: Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800-insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Hi!
7: Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton, your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Hi, it's Hannah, email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
11: WHMP news, information and the arts and messages from community nonprofits.
1: We welcome back to our studio, Larry Hott. This is Cool Films with Larry Hott, and I'm very excited to hear your thoughts about the film that I just watched and loved. Larry,
12: the microphone's yours. Well, Bill, you know about Judy Bloom, uh, and here you and I, and everybody else in this room, is a cisgendered male. But this morning, we're going to talk about things like menstruation, periods, teenage sex masturbation from a girl's point of view through the eyes of the author Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom is known to anybody who has ever had a teenage kid as mostly a young author, um, um, a writer of uh, young adult books, but she also writes adult novels and has been writing for well over 50 years, one of the best-selling authors in America. And the filmmakers here uh, produced this two-hour film about Judy Bloom. It took him five years to get her to agree. And believe me, it was worth it because this is a wonderful film. It's more than just a portrait of an artist. It is a look at society, particularly the way men treat women and young girls, and all, and all teenagers, through the eyes of a mother who has experienced it and has written such a way that most people who read her book say she is not condescending. She is talking directly to us, and she knows about our experiences. So this two-hour film, uh, really, it's one of the things that a documentary can do best. It's a telebiography and illustrate it and relate it to things that are going on in society. That's what, by, why, why is a biography interesting? Because it connects a human being and their story to what is going on in their time. And Judy Bloom forever does a great job at that. I think if we hear a clip from this film, you get a sense of how lively, entertaining, and important this film is.
8: Teenagers who fall in love and do it, and nobody has to die. And I thought, yes. Are
7: you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I felt like someone was being honest. That's a gift. That's magic. There was this
8: moment where, wow, like, Judy's talking to me.
7: I read tales of a fourth grade nothing. I read *Eenie*. I like the blubber. This is my favorite book
8: i grew up as a good girl with a bad girl lurking inside so by the time i started to write i really had a lot to get out i could be fearless in my writing in a way that maybe i wasn't always in my life
7: it was the first book i had read about wanting to grow boobs and the myths around how to get
5: them and what to do everything i learned about sex or crushes i learned from judy let's all say it mask everybody <laughs> oh oh judy
8: we can take Okay. I
12: mean, the tagline there, let's ha- let's raise our hands if we masturbate. Uh, this is what got her in trouble. Uh, a major section of this film was about banning books and her standing up to banning books. And it's no surprise, I think, that uh, she now at 85 has not retired, but is living in Key West where she runs a bookstore, right? Where she features banned books, among other things. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about about what this film is like. It is very lively, entertaining, not the least because of the people who are in it. I'll give you a list of some of them. Lena Dunham, I know her from Girls. She's an actress and director. Molly Ringwald, remember her? Mm. From the Sweet 16, all those other uh, teen romps. Samantha Bee uh, from Saturday Night Live and uh, other late and night full, TV shows. Full
1: Frontal with Samantha B.
12: Yeah, uh, and so these people are... Are in the film, and every single person in this film is interviewed in a room that looks like it's a child's room, uh, and the intentionality of the filming of the interviews is stunning. What is stunning to me about this
1: film, Larry, is the way that Judy Bloom is interviewed. It's not just clips of her and archival material. It is she's answering questions, and she is an amazing interviewee because you ask her a question, and you get a direct, honest, succinct, articulate answer.
12: And also she's sitting full frontal. She's facing the camera. She's not off to the side. And she is so lively, engaging, and entertaining. You feel like you want to know her. And I think that's what comes across in her books as well. And her books also trace the social change in the country. So over 50 years, you can sort of see what is going on with women's issues. Um, And and, and we should note, she also started,
1: because when when she was on Mm -hmm. this show, Mm -hmm. uh, and I had the great honor of interviewing her, What I talked to her about, because we didn't have enough time to talk about everything, was her books about fudge, and super fudge, and the kids' kids' books. Right,
12: and actually based on her son, Larry, uh, and I have a very, very tiny connection with this, because uh, early in my film career, I had to borrow an editing table at Hampshire College, and I took from the room where I was editing a box with my name on it, Larry. And I took it home.
4: <laughs>
12: and I got a frantic call from Larry Bloom, <laughs> Judy Bloom's son, who was at Hampshire College. said, do you happen to have my box, my film? There's no other copy of it. I said, oh, my God, you have mine, right? And we had to meet in exchange. So that was my only connection with, uh, with Judy Bloom. But Tell, I'm tell say, me so, about so, this. Yeah. I want to ask yeah. you, because yeah. I want
1: to ask you as a filmmaker about something that Judy Bloom says in this film, which is, she said, I can write, and I did mm. write, about what teenagers thought and what young children thought, because I can still transport my mind to that place, I can still hear those conversations.
12: Well, you know how some people have photographic memories. She says that she can remember everything in her life from third grade on. Right, I can remember the names of my elementary school teachers, but not everything that happened. But she says, she claims that she can remain re- remember everything, and then she writes about it. She turns her life into these stories. But another thing about her, and it occurred to me after watching this film that she is Mr. Rogers in print. She is Fred Rogers. She has that kind of hold on children. She can talk she, to them in a way Well, she's kind of a to.
1: combination of Fred Rogers and Dr. Ruth.
12: A- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Fred Rogers, if he was a sex therapist. Um, <laughs> and she, it's a wonderful
3: day in the neighborhood.
12: <laughs> she, she also has lived through a lot of things she writes about. Um, She was divorced after many years of marriage. Her husband was glad that she was a writer because he said, well, now she has a hobby. She won't spend as much time shopping, right? That's the kind of marriage she had. And then she had a fling, a short marriage for a while. And she said, I'll never marry again. But then she settled down with this wonderful, avuncular man, George. And together they're living in Key West, Florida. And there's some kind of hokey scenes in the film where we see her bicycling around Key West, um, and she's in her bookstore, and people come in to get their books signed, and all that's kind of uh, run-of-the-mill filmmaking. But the film doesn't shy away from using really entertaining techniques, animation, old clips. But the heart of the film, and the thing that I think you, anybody who sees this will never forget, is that they interview women, and, and, and some boys too, who have been writing to Judy Bloom for 40, 50 years.
1: That was amazing. The archives, correspondence that she has had with readers who were young, started out as young readers, that have gone on for years and decades.
12: And she is sitting in a a room where I guess her archives are, where there are boxes and boxes and boxes, and she pulls out the letters, and we see the actual letters in the handwriting, and then we see the adult women who wrote to her, and one of these women... The, the the girl had when she was uh, graduating from college, she had no family to come to her graduation, and Judy Bloom shows up at Bryn Mawr, and attends her graduation. <clears throat> excuse me, without ever having met her in person before, and that's the kind of person she is. And I am sure she's not a saint, uh, but she comes across. Uh, well, that's, I, let me put it this way: the film is not a not hagiography. I mean, she's obviously flawed, and she admits to her flaws, but you want to like her and you appreciate what she has done for young children. And I remember when my daughter was young, she read the books, and now, as an adult, I want to go back and read these books. Not only the, not only the, uh, the, the adult ones that she's written about her life, but I want to go back and read, uh, here's some of the books, titles you might recognize. Dini, Forever, and the most famous one, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And then the, the Fudge series, and then a film with the great title, Blubber which is about a girl who's a little bit overweight, and the, the kids tease her, they bully her, and call her blubber. Um, these books seem to be timeless, the way that people in the film talk about them. And they, they're interviewed, of course, with stacks of these books next to them, and they pull them out, and they read their favorite passages. Uh, I, I think as a sales tool <laughs> for Judy Bloom's books, uh, the film is terrific, but it doesn't feel like it is a commercial. It feels like this is an honest portrait of an American writer who is writing about children and sexuality in a way that we, that we did not have this before. And of course, the right wing has attacked her. And there's a wonderful scene in the film where she confronts Pat Buchanan on a talk show, and he's going after her for the books. And she says, have you read the book or only the highlighted parts? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, you know you know what the answer is going to be, but of course he doesn't, he doesn't answer her.
1: Yeah, and I should note that there is a film made out and from the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, that is itself a really good film. I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of these, and I felt at the end, the Judy Blume Forever film, I knew her in a way that I had never known her before, it taught me about how a writer's, a brilliant writer's mind works, and it made me want to know more about her. It made me want to go back and reread the books.
12: There are so many little facts that jump out of this. When she was a young woman and she sold her first book and she got a $350 advance and she buys an electric typewriter. Right, so, that's, so the first time she actually has a typewriter that she can work with and then she produces I don't know how many thousands and thousands of pages on that electric typewriter, which she, which she still has and I guess will one day end up in the Judy Bloom Museum. <laughs> the film next that we're going to talk about is? Well, it's related to this film. It's called Periodical and it's about women's periods. Which we'll discuss right after this. Four guys in the studio, forgive us before we start.
9: In the
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
9: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and Co-op member, Bill Newman.
1: Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the Co-op every day. At the Co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe, and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice, get just the right amount in the Co-op's bulk department.
5: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. I'm living the life that I lived before I started having knee pain 10 years ago.
11: Meet Julie, a woman who makes the most of every moment in life. But over the last years, those moments were filled with agonizing pain until she discovered QC Kinetics.
5: Finally, the pain got so bad that people around me are like, oh, when are you getting your knee replaced? I was walking, hobbling. I listened to my last QC Kinetics commercial and I said, I'm done. I got to find out about this.
11: What Julie found out was QC Kinetics treats osteoarthritis with regenerative therapies taking your body's own healing properties and concentrating them in the areas where you feel pain, helping heal and restore those damaged areas. No harmful steroids, surgery, or downtime.
5: It changed how I'm living. I'm able to do the things that I wasn't able to do for a long time. Get back
11: your life before the pain. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation.
9: Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
11: Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
8: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, 101.5 and 1400, WHMP, news, information and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott, who is going to introduce us to a film I'm already hiding under the console, but
12: please, oh, it's go for it. It's the perfect film for four cisgendered men in this room, <laughs> three of whom are, are 73 years old to talk about. Uh, this is a curious thing. Uh, you know, I'm watching the films for the Academy Awards now to judge them, the documentaries— and I just watched Judy Bloom forever. And then the next film that comes up in my queue is called Periodical.
1: And this is for your queue for your reviewing for films. For reviewing films. For the Academy and, Awards. And
12: Periodical is about periods, women's periods, not about newspapers. And I start watching this film, and one of the first things that comes up is a woman talking about Judy Bloom and the effect it had on her, how honest Judy Bloom was, and how we have to be honest about our our periods. And I thought, okay, perfect combination. I'll talk about Judy Bloom forever, and we'll talk about periodical. And I think it's actually appropriate for cisgender men to talk about this because the film is actually aimed at everybody. And one of the key things that gets into, into the film is how oppressive males have been, how the patriarchy has been to women throughout history, and it actually opens up with a discussion of what every major religion in the world says about menstruation—that it is dirty, it's evil, it's a time for women to be hidden away. Um, and if you read anything in the Old Testament about this, it's particularly in Levit- Leviticus. You know, this is the time when women, you know, don't uh, have not have any association with with men. In fact, should remove themselves from from society. But the film says <laughs> the absolute opposite. I think if we hear a clip, you'll get a sense. Let me just say something about this film. This is most, probably the most lively film I have ever seen. It is designed to be as entertaining, funny, silly as possible, so you'll pay attention to a very serious issue. Go ahead. Yeah.
5: I fucking hate having my
7: periods. When I was growing up, we did not speak about it. I never had like the period talk with my mom or my
8: dad. I'm supposed to get my period any minute. Yeah. I think women's bodies are political, and so I think the period is part of that. It's just part of life. We have suppressed that knowledge and made it seem shameful.
7: The word hysteria comes from the word hystera, which is Greek for uterus. Basically, anything that happened with your period made you crazy.
5: We're going to Michigan to put that pressure on lawmakers to repeal the Michigan tampon ties.
8: What would happen if men could menstruate?
5: We tried a period cramp simulator. I had my
7: first hot flash the other day.
5: I was just sick of keeping it secret. Let's get rid of
7: stigma. So I always say, you know, closed for business, but open for pleasure.
12: okay okay closed for business open for pleasure this film is pleasurable you can it's actually produced i was surprised it is produced by msnbc and is available on their website and judy bloom forever is on amazon prime uh so these are easy to see if you have prime it's for free if you want to participate in the amazon monopoly but we'll go into that some other time uh I mentioned that this film is lively. It has cartoons, TV shows, silent films, horror movies, notably Brian De Palma's Carrie, which comes back over and over again. I don't remember all the blood in Carrie, but what's going on is that Carrie is having her period. Remember, that's what the blood is. Um, and they keep coming back to this. There was a through line in this film that holds it together. And any good documentary has to have some kind of narrative through line to come back to. And here... A through line. You're talking about what
1: we might call as a thread in it, A thread that
12: keeps okay. you going. And say, so I wonder what's going to happen next. And here they use the device of a young woman who is an activist who is trying to get the tax on female hygiene products removed. 21 states tax tampons, for example. Massachusetts does not. I looked it up. 21 states charge sales tax on period products, but no state charges a sales tax on Viagra. Gentlemen, are you ready to become an activist on this? The silence. This is where I say,
1: we have the right to remain silent. Everything we say probably can and will be used against us. But I do know that
3: there is a bill, Mindy Dom is among the sponsors for uh, public higher education institutes to provide free um, uh, products.
12: So this is a big big issue in the film. Uh, The major point they make, why is it so hard to get sex education in the United States? Why is it suppressed? What is the point of suppressing the knowledge? And they make the connection between suppressing the knowledge of your own body with the anti-abortion movement. The less knowledgeable you are, the less agency you have. That's the message that comes out of this film. And the right wing, the conservatives, prefer ignorance because it makes it easier to control people's behavior. And the, the reason,
1: yeah, and I think we should note that those states which have the least sex education are the ones that have the most unwanted pregnancies, and until, of course, the Supreme Court overruled Roe, role, the highest rates of abortion.
12: Yes, And the film makes the point that this is no accident. And in general, it says that gynecological health care in the United States is a misogynistic mess. Right, uh, Then the people who you hear talking about this, uh, everybody from Gloria Steinem uh, to Naomi Watts, and then what I really appreciated was many, many OBGYNs, uh, particularly women of color, talking about what it's like to practice medicine nowadays, what they, have to tr- to, what they talk to their patients about, how ignorant many of the patients are when they come in, and how they feel that this is a political job of theirs to educate not only their patients, but everybody in their community. Um, and they they really say that this shame over having a, a period is still in our society and that young women mostly do not know what's going on. And I know from watching uh, several other uh, films about uh, the, this very issue in other countries, in India, for example, this is a major issue, uh, making sanitary products that are affordable, and companies have started, women-run companies have started up in some of these nations, the the whole point of which is to make them uh, cheap and available to women so that the kids, the girls can attend school, because if they go to school and they don't have affordable sanitary products, uh, then they're going to leave and they're not going to come back. So they make this connection between healthcare, sex education, and uh, feminine hygiene products and power, which is you know something that you just don't think of, at the uh, you know right off the bat. So here in the United States, which we think of as somewhat progressive sometimes on these issues, when twenty-one states are taxing these products. So that what the film uses is those very engaging, uh, active women who go from state to state, and they use Michigan as an example, and then they they follow the Michigan fight right through the legislature of Mich- Michigan and I won't tell the ending because that's the ending of the film but they then they, they use that as a hook to say okay what's going to happen next which every film needs to have some sense of tension and wanting to find out uh, what the end of the story is.
1: So, yeah the idea that you can take this serious issue and make it engaging and fun and funny and instructive that's an amazing combination.
12: Yes and so I, I, I recommend the combination of two films. Uh, Judy Bloom Forever on Amazon Prime and Periodical on MSNBC.
1: Larry Hott, thank you so very much. This has been Cool Films with Larry Hott.
9: But what else you gonna say?
8: PMS
9: Get takeout, save 30% get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 Store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 Store, open right now at
7: whmp.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can Say Something. We all can Say Something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to Say Something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org.
9: WHMP North Brian Lapis, 1015, WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg.
1: And I'm Bill Newman. And on the front page of today's Greenfield Recorder, top of the fold, the headline Candidates Spar on Schools, Public Safety, the mention of the two candidates for mayor of Greenfield. Mentions the hour-long debate that covered economic development, housing, and the future of downtown. It says the two city's two mayoral candidates were perhaps most at odds when discussing police and school funding. The article goes on to state the debate was co-sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Franklin County, Greenfield Community Television, Greenfield Community College, and the Greenfield Recorder. It was moderated by longtime Ashfield Town Moderator and WHMP Talk the Talk co-host, Stuart Buzz Heisenberg. Tell us about the debate, Buzz. What were your impressions?
3: Best seat in the House. My impressions were seriously. And, and a
1: lovely photograph of you and the two mayoral candidates. Is
3: there? I actually haven't seen it. But, uh, yeah, did I shine them up? I looked so beautiful? Is that, is I, I wasn't going to go that far. But <laughs> <laughs> no, the truth of the matter is, and, and I made comments after the debate was over, it, it is so wonderful that, that voters get to see, shoulder to shoulder, the people that they're being asked to trust You know their their tax dollars and so much more with, and both of them came fully prepared to address all sorts of issues. They had no idea what the questions were going to be. The panel, which is included, the managing editor of the Recorder, a downtown business uh, business person, Brian Doyle, and the co president of Massachusetts League of Women Voters. The panelists asked great questions, um, and they were prepared. We you really got a chance to assess uh, each candidate on fair terms. They were respectful.
1: They were responsive. Um, it's- The it's two a, candidates we should note, note the present mayor, the incumbent Roxanne Wiedegardner and Virginia Jenny DeSorger. That's exactly right, who is the chair of the council's Ways and Means Committee. So, they, they each
3: had a, a history that they could talk about in, in, uh, Greenfield politics. And, um, I just think it's a great service. I think every important race should have a debate and it should be televised so people could see it. And shout out to GCTV and its crew. They did a great job um, broadcasting the important event. I'm, I'm happy for Greenfield that they got a chance to see these two candidates uh, shoulder to shoulder.
1: You think that the debates actually show what the differences are in the candidates and show who the candidates are to show who's the better debater?
3: Yes, and yes. And uh, I'm not going to make a comment about who I think is the better debater, but I, I will say that I, people got a chance to assess that by their own standards. But the one question, which came from Brian Doyle, the uh, downtown uh, businessman, he asked, could you describe your leadership style? I thought that was a great question. And each of them talked about what they thought was important in a, in a leader. Um, you know, both of them focused on... <laughs> the DeSorger said she has big ears, so she's a big listener. Uh, Roxanne Wiedegarten also said she's a good listener and she knows how to um, tap people, uh, surround herself with people who have knowledge. But I thought that was a really good question. I do think that voters were informed. I, I think that they were. So it was great. And uh, so, because we all want to be informed, and uh, which is a great segue to our next guest who is no longer just a guest. He is uh, somebody who we always look forward to having in the studio. He is an investigative reporter. He's a freelance reporter, and he is Dusty Christensen, who's covered so many important uh, stories over such a long period of time. Dusty, thank you for joining us again today. Oh,
13: it's always a pleasure. It's great to be in here with y'all.
3: Well, I know what I want to talk to you about. It's a story you've been working on recently, I understand, and... um, you're such a good investigator, but I would just want to tell for 30 seconds as the moderator of the town of Ashfield, I was involved in many, many meetings involving broadband. Uh, the our, our community is concerned that everything from the ability to uh, sell houses at a decent price, um, it, broadband is such an important part of kids' education, of stimulating business and allowing people to remotely do business. Broadband has become a feature that it's it's really hard to live without as a municipality these days. And uh, I think as a little town of Ashfield, we borrowed a lot of money and we were able to get us some grants and we have terrific uh, Wi-Fi service now in Ashfield. Um But I think every city easily gets broadband service, doesn't it, Dusty? (laughs) I wish that were the case. Unfortunately, it's not. Um,
13: In America, uh, federal estimates show that some 7% of, of Americans don't have adequate broadband service. Massachusetts data census uh, or Massachusetts census data shows that's around 10% of the state that doesn't have a broadband subscription. That digital divide spans uh, both rural communities that are totally unconnected and urban communities as well, where maybe parts of the city aren't as connected or where people cannot afford a reliable internet connection. Um, The Massachusetts Broadband Institute, which is a state run division, put out uh, statistics at a recent lessening session that it held in the area showing that a whopping 28% of uh, households in our region, in the Pioneer Valley, have no broadband internet uh, subscriptions. And 52% of municipalities in our area have little to no competition in the broadband market. Wow. So wow. it's really a surprising thing. It's really an important thing.
1: A bill. Dusty, could you go back to this statistic you just gave us on how many people do not have access to broadband. It's like saying in 2023 you don't have access to electricity or running water. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. But apparently true. That that's right. That's, those are the figures that uh that we found
13: from from, you know, the state uh run division that uh is in charge of ins- ensuring uh, that everyone gets internet. Of course, we all know particularly after the COVID-19 pandemic uh began just how important all of this stuff is. You know, you are unable to attend school remotely, or to zoom to an important business meeting, or to even do something as as simple as as shop online, or to
1: do telemedicine, or a thousand things. Telemedicine, you're right. Is is there a difference between broadband and internet that we should know?
13: Broadband, I believe, refers to uh, high-speed internet, and there's all there's several different ways that you can get uh, broadband, but the most uh, the fastest and most reliable way is fiber optic cables, which use light signals to
3: transfer information much faster than say copper wires. And so uh, what I learned is you we, we could throw out the term fiber optic cables, but that means take a look as you drive down the street. Every time you see a telephone wire going from one pole to another pole or electricity, it's another wire that has to be installed. It's a big project. It is a big
13: project. And a lot of municipalities are beginning to grapple with this question now of how to bring fiber internet two homes in their city or town. This is something that, as you rightly pointed out, rural communities here in Western Mass have really struggled with because they were, many of them, and uh, and still are, truly disconnected uh, with no reliable broadband access. Uh, but nevertheless, there are also those inequities that continue to exist in some of our smaller cities and, and bigger cities as well. Um, Uh, There's a sizable portion of people in Springfield who do not have access to reliable internet. Uh, This is very much a a social justice issue in the 21st century.
3: So investigative reporter Dusty Christensen, uh, I remember that the infrastructure bill, which did pass, it had provisions to, and I think it was over a 10-year period, to make sure that everyone, every community in America actually gets broadband. Do I have that
13: right? That's right. So that $1 trillion infrastructure uh, bill that Congress did pass in 2021 included a whopping $42 billion to pour into high-speed internet infrastructure, including $147 million to Massachusetts. Uh, a lot of people are saying that's a small amount to our state. FCC maps show that our state is is more connected than uh, than other states, although a bunch of extras point out that those FCC maps are um, are very inaccurate, um, and that there continues to be this this big gulf, this digital divide here in Massachusetts as well as elsewhere. Um, that funding is primarily focused on on connecting households that are identified as unserved at all by broadband, and so uh, you know, in what that will mean is that there will be far less unserved locations when this funding is is uh, is spent. Uh, however. A lot of those places are rural communities, and so cities and and more urban communities that are also struggling with the digital divide here in our area may not have access to those funds. Just recently, uh, Northampton put out its own report on whether or not to explore the idea of city-owned fiber internet, a municipal internet. Um, uh, voters in in Northampton voted to create a municipal light plant, which is basically a municipal utility. Um, and uh, the consultants at Northampton hired—it's a municipally owned utility. That's right, and that's yes, and that's very important. Uh, and we will get to that about the uh, about East Hampton, I think, in a minute here. Um, uh, that funding, uh, the the mayor recently held. a a municipal broadband community meeting last month to talk about that report that the consultants put out after a couple years of studying this issue in Northampton. And she and the consultant made it clear that Northampton is likely not to qualify for those federal funds, despite having a sizable portion of people who are unserved or underserved here in the in the community. And so uh, there's some tricky parts th- to this federal funding coming in. Um, it has to go first to unserved communities, and then it can be used for underserved communities. The question is, how is the state going to define underserved communities?
1: Could you go back to the economics of this for 30 seconds, please, Dusty Christensen? I don't understand why, given the demand for internet access, for broadband, why this isn't a lucrative business for companies. What's standing in the way of capitalism actually working well in this instance? Uh, well, it's a great point. Uh, you know, in rural communities, uh, the
13: challenge is that uh, people are very spaced out. And so building and out that infrastructure. It's expensive to lay down the lines. It's expensive to lay down the lines for a whole host of, of wonky reasons. Um, and you and know, for you have, a
3: very small number of potential subscribers.
13: That's right. And so that's why some of these private businesses have been reluctant to come into um to rural markets. But of course, that doesn't address the question of, of, uh, of cities. I will say that there is one company uh, that, uh, that has now come into Amherst and East Hampton uh, by the name of GoNet GoNetSpeed, uh, who I pl- profiled in a recent piece for The Shoestring, uh, who are now starting to bring fiber networks to these cities. Of course, it raises questions about can a private business do it as well as a, as a publicly focused entity like a municipal light plant? Um, I guess we're going to have to find that one out.
3: Yeah, I, I think that it it is really interesting. We, you know, for listeners who might not know, in rural communities we don't get cable. We hear all of our, our city dwelling friends talk about uh, Comcast and bemoaning this and that. But if you're lucky enough to be able to afford it, you need a satellite dish outside your house in a rural community because you can't get cable because it's just so expensive to actually lay the wires. And that's part of the broadband thing. So we, in in so many of the communities that surround where I live, we had to borrow the money. And that imposes a burden on taxpayers. Um, and then we have to base it on uh, how many subscribers we're going to have and how much do we have to charge them in order to pay the debt that borrowing the money paid for. And just before we take a break, Dusty Christensen, you, as an investigator, you have to learn a lot about stuff like this. It's complicated. You... When you decide to cover something like the East Hampton broadband situation, you have to learn about all sorts of federal, state, legislation. Do you enjoy that process? I do. You know, it allows us to just pick the brains of all sorts of experts who, if
13: I was maybe a regular citizen, I wouldn't have the chance to call and talk to. Uh, Really exciting stuff. Uh, Obviously, as a reporter, you end up doing a lot of reading, so you know, as a reporter over the years, I've, fo- I've followed a lot of these developments as they play out in some of our local communities. Uh, it is really exciting. And uh, luckily, I have a relationship with a, a news outlet, The Shoestring, uh, that really prioritizes this kind of in-depth uh, reporting from me. And so um, in this latest piece of The Shoestring, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, we dug into the decisions that East Hampton has made around this question of whether to bring in municipal broadband or to instead uh, support a private company coming in to do that. We're going to talk about Just
3: that, right after this.
0: the talk with bill newman and buzz Eisenberg. find local news and local talk for the valley
7: if we didn't go for this project the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million and we don't get help with that so this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students.
0: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information and the arts.
4: Apple has responded to multiple reports of the new iPhone 15 Pro overheating and is preparing a remedy. The company will release an iOS 17 update it hopes will resolve the problem. The company said in a statement that some overheating might be normal during the setup of a new device. Walmart plans to offer more services to pet owners. The retailer is starting with 65 stores across the country where it will offer veterinarian grooming services. Walmart said it expects to save pet owners time and money with the service at the same location where people buy pet supplies. Locking yourself out of your house or car is not only annoying, but highly stressful. In most of these instances, you look for a locksmith, but be careful. Locksmiths Consumer Affairs Consulted warned that scammers often pose as locksmiths, collect money but provide no service. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
3: And we're back talking with investigative reporter uh, Dusty Christensen. And um, I, I think, Dusty, you were about to talk about East Hampton and the sort of turbulent road, the path that they've been taking um, towards broadband. I think it's really interesting because we love th- East Hampton and we want to hear about that. But it also is kind of a uh, an example of the anatomy of a public policy decision. There is a need. People need to have broadband. It's a different world that we're living in than we did 10, even 10 years ago. And East Hampton is without this critical need. How do we get it in East Hampton? So, what has your investigative work led to?
13: Yeah, so uh, there was a big announcement earlier this year. Uh, The city of East Hampton uh, came out and said that a uh, company was coming in town. East Hampton uh, currently is only, uh, uh, there's only one internet service provider. Um, who is, I can confidently say, uh, roundly disliked uh, by most in town uh, because it's a monopoly. There's no other competition. Uh, the city announced earlier this year that another private company by the name of Go Net Speed was coming in to install fiber optic cables throughout the city. Uh, there was a lot of fanfare about that announcement because it's bringing in more competition to the market. Um, and there were a lot of news articles just about the fact that this uh, organization was coming in. It was interesting to me as both an East Hampton resident and as somebody who has followed this issue for for years now, uh, because I knew that East Hampton, beginning all the way in 2018 2019, had been working towards bringing city-owned fiber internet to town. They, in 2019, we all, as East Hampton voters, cast ballots to approve the creation of, of what's called a municipal light plant, basically a, a city-owned utility in East Hampton. Uh, and it was explicit uh, in, in sort of the buildup to that vote that it was to explore bringing city-owned internet to East Hampton. Which eliminates the cost of profit. That's right. You know these 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 municipally owned utilities uh, do not. They have to make a certain degree of revenue, but they do not have the same profit motive as an investor backed company does. And so, therefore, you know uh, the the cities and towns who do have these municipal light plants. I'm thinking Southampton, West. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, South Hadley, Westfield, uh, Holyoke, for example. Um, uh, tend to say that their services are, uh, their costs are, are more reliable and lower than a private-owned uh, utility. So East Hampton went down the road for five years of, of uh, getting ready to establish a municipal network of faster fiber optic cables to deliver broadband. That included the passage of the ballot initiative in 2019. Then a committee studied the issue for several years uh, and and determined that that city-owned broadband would be, Best to serve the city's residents. The town spent $150,000 uh, paying the the South Hadley Electric Light Department to do design work to be, for the first stages of this project. And then suddenly, earlier this year, the mayor's office announced that this private company was coming in, and and. It seemed like the end of the road for public broadband, a dream that a lot of people had had for about five years. So as part of my investigative work with the shoestring, we kind of dug into why that decision was made. It's a tough call for for municipal leaders like uh, like like mayors. Uh, Mayor Nicola LaChapelle has said that she ultimately decided to welcome this company in uh, because it's not going to ta- cost taxpayers anything. They're not going to have to bond to bring uh, fiber cables to town. But of course, a lot of people who dreamed of municipal broadband are really concerned that a private company is going to just. Uh, Charge high high prices, and and that the city is going to have no control over its own internet
1: because the company in effect is a monopoly.
13: Right, and we should get into who this company is. It is GoNet Speed, uh, which is um, it. It sort of started as uh, a, a company called Telco. Uh, that was originally publicly traded until 2021, when a private equity firm by the name of Oak Hill Capital bought the company, took it private. Part of uh, this uh, private equity firm's consolidation of telecom and, and internet services in our area, and now they're they're in communities in in Maine and uh, and and Massachusetts and elsewhere in New England, uh, bringing fiber to towns. Um, you know, they're saying that they're bringing competition to places that don't have any competition. That's of course true. But a lot of people have pointed out that that one of the big ways these private equity firms make money is by buying a company, restructuring it, and then selling it on. And so some people are worried that this company going at speed is going to install all these fiber networks around our area and then get gobbled up by one of the same folks who face no competition currently, one of the telecom giants. They say that's not the case, the company, but there are those concerns out there.
3: Well, and then subscribers uh, of the service are now reliant on that company so that they really they could fall victim to you know all kinds of price fluctuations
1: is there any state regulation that says no this utility can't raise rates to its heart's content you know it's a great question
13: i'm sure there are some regulations to that effect i'm i i, I will admit that i am not a, the the biggest broadband wonk of of all of them so i'm not 100% sure what those look like um, but absent a uh, municipally controlled uh, controlled utility it is up to the private company to decide uh, what decisions get made about the network, including whether or not to build out to certain uh, neighborhoods. Let's say there's a low-income neighborhood where a private company thinks there's not going to be a lot of uptake of their service. They may, may not expend the capital to build out to that neighborhood. Um, now, of course, the GoNet Speed says they will build out to the entirety of East Hampton. But we did a public records request for the... Um, for the uh, the agreement that the city has signed with Gonet Speed, and it says that uh, you know that build out to to citywide to homes and businesses um, is going to happen as soon as possible and is subject to supply chain and or state agency or other third parties. So there's no definitive promise there that that the city can hold them to because it's just a private company coming in as opposed to a partnership between a public and a private. Entity.
3: So, Dusty Christensen, is there uh, pushback on this uh, on the mayor's decision?
13: I, I think we're the first people. We published the story today. We're the first ones who have uh, published the story out to the world. I think every other news outlet just focused on going at speed coming in. So, I think we'll see the reactions in the coming days.
1: Is this a done deal, Dusty, or is there still debate and alternatives that are possible?
13: Uh, of course, the, the, the city could decide that it still wants to move forward with municipal broadband if it wanted. Um, but of course, if GoNet Speed is coming in and they are already installing their fiber cables, I just saw them uh, uh, late last week uh, running cables in the city. Um, that's a lot of competition for a municipal uh, startup uh, fiber company to uh, compete with. So it seems unlikely that the city is going to move forward now uh, with municipal broadband.
3: It seemed like it's maybe died in East Hampton. I, I can only use Ashfield as an example because it's the one that I always know. Um, but we there, there were estimates that it was going to cost subscribers about $125 a month. Early on, when we were looking for broadband, we ended up uh, hiring Westfield's uh, Gas and Electric. They actually wired our, our municipality. We created a municipal utility. Uh, what's it called? Municipal light plant. That's that right. And... Um, now our cost, our monthly cost as subscribers is eighty five dollars, and we have really great service uh, considering where we live. So we're extremely happy with it. I know for some people, eighty five dollars a month is a lot of money. It's over a thousand dollars a year, and that can be difficult. But it's good service, um, and it's not one hundred and twenty five dollars a month. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of municipally owned utilities, municipally owned businesses, um, worker controlled businesses. Uh, we love it. Dusty Christensen, you do such fine work, and you keep us informed about it. I always look forward to you coming back. Thanks so much. Check out the shoestring for this article, folks. Okay. Shoestring. Make sure we check it out. Thank you. We're going to be right back. We're going to be talking about another really important issue, affordable housing, right after this.
8: Crashing slowly, the bugs are in me, dirty cars gum-
0: The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Last night, the two women competing to be the next mayor of Greenfield discussed their platforms at a forum hosted by GCTV. Incumbent Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner opened the forum touting her
8: accomplishments. And what has happened under my leadership? We now have a new skate park to be enjoyed by skaters of all ages. We have expanded zoning for manufacturing, which will bring living wage jobs. We have created more than 100 new housing units in our downtown with the redevelopment of Wilson's and with the Well Street Shelter, which is run by CSO.
7: Virginia DeSorger, the precinct three city councilor running to unseat the mayor, said love for her neighbors and a desire to address issues important to them, Motivated her to
5: run for mayor. I am running for mayor because when I look at this city, I see people, families, the elderly, those who struggle daily to put food on the table and have meaning in their lives.
7: Last night's forum, moderated by Buzz Eisenberg, was the only opportunity to hear the mayoral candidates answer questions before the election on November 7th. A long-awaited promise soon to be realized on Beacon Hill as Governor Maura Healy signs a massive tax relief bill later this afternoon. This was a campaign promise for the Healy administration and has been in the works since before they started their campaign. The bill is expected to provide $561 million for tax relief for the fiscal year 2024 and will grow to a total impact of more than $1 billion by 2027.
9: Mostly sunny skies today, warm with a high of 82 to 86 and a light breeze. Variable clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s, an overnight low of 52 to 58. Some patchy fog is possible in the morning. Otherwise, a partly the mostly sunny day tomorrow, a high of 76 to 80. Rain potentially for Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
0: Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program occupying the media three hours a day five days a week for we the people on 101.5 and 1400 join me noon to three eastern time monday through friday right here on the tom hartman program whmp
6: It's family fun and football for band day back at McGurk Alumni Stadium this Saturday at 12 o'clock. Join UMass football as high school bands from all over New England perform at halftime with the powering class of New England, the Minutemen Marching Band. October 7th is also Pride Day where we recognize and embrace the diversity of our campus and community. After the football game, head over to the Mullen Center to see Massachusetts hockey take on AIC at 7 o'clock. For tickets, visit umassathletics.com tickets. We'll see you on October The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield
11: and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786.
5: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me
7: at hward at or call me at 586-7400.
11: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community
0: nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
3: And welcome back to the show. Uh, as Bill mentioned uh, last night, I had the absolute privilege of best seat in the House during the mayoral debate in um, Franklin County in Greenfield between uh, Roxanne Wiedegartner and Ginny DeSorger. And uh, what kept coming up before the debate even started, but certainly during the debate, is the question of affordable housing in Greenfield. And um, we are very fortunate whenever we have the opportunity to talk to uh, our two guests here in the studio, Wayfinders President and CEO Keith Ferry. And uh, Franklin Regional Council of Government Executive Director, Linda Dunleavy. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, Keith, um, let me start with you. In the arena of affordable housing,
14: can we just start with how are we doing in this region? Well, we are trying, I would say. Uh, there's lots of good work happening um, up and down the Pioneer Valley with uh, communities trying to create more opportunities through uh, zoning measures. Um, this year uh, in, in Franklin County, Montague created a 40-R zone. We are. Uh, what does that mean? It's a zone to, for residential development uh, where they allow a little bit more um, opportunity for developers to know where we want to see residential development in our towns, what, what we see, and, and, and give a little bit more scale to that. Um, what often, what happens is developers come in and they're looking for opportunities. But if towns don't kind of provide that kind of roadmap of, of providing uh, an opportunity for residential development, event, residential development at a different scale, it becomes uh, a, it becomes a a, um, a a situation where they can become at loggerheads with developers. Uh, we are developing in a in a 40 hour zone in South Hadley, for example. We uh, Wayfinders. Uh, we're going to be developing a 60-plus unit development, mixed income, um, that's in a, a, a form, It's in a commercial plaza uh, that has excess parking. So we're developing a 60-unit apartment building. They identified that 40-R. They get incentive money actually from the state when they do that uh, to help them make improvements. Uh, they're also doing a, a mass works project there that's improving uh, the roadways around it, and then we'll put the new housing there. Well, uh, I, I want to interrupt, and I, do, I want to continue to hear about that, but I want to ask you, Linda maybe.
3: Uh, we think of affordable housing, and we think of, oh, it's not fair. It's a question of equity. Some people just can't afford mean housing. But the impact on a community of not having sufficient affordable housing, from your perspective as the director of a Franklin County uh, of a, a council of governments, what's your perspective?
5: Well, I'll start by saying that there has been a twenty one per twenty one point six percent decline in k through twelve enrollment in Franklin County in the last ten years and part of that is a lack of housing for our young families and for people we need to bring to western mass to rural parts of the state population projections for the coming decades are that our population is to, to, to decline precipitously but as keith will say that doesn't need to happen it can be that we are working together locally, regionally, and statewide to recognize how hard it is to build housing and how important it is to build housing throughout all parts of Western Mass.
3: Not just schools, economic development. Keith, you and I have discussed this before, but I know in my community uh, we see so many people who were raised in the community want to stay in the community and they don't have a place to live.
14: Yes, and this this opportunity we need to create in all different types of communities. It's in rural communities. It's in urban communities. It's in suburban communities. There isn't that housing ladder. Uh, there isn't a housing opportunity if you're looking for that starter home and trying to, to to grow your family there. There isn't an opportunity for seniors to move into a different kind of housing situation if they're, after their family they've raised their family and they're looking for it to downsize. We need to create more options. We haven't been building enough for decades. Uh, And as Linda says, there's room to grow here in Western Massachusetts, and we need to start thinking about how we want to see that growth happen. That's why I talk about things like 40-R zones and other things. That's about communities deciding what their future should look like, thinking about these population projections and planning for them. I have a question.
1: It seems to me that when there is money to be made, Builders will build, and that the trick here, if that's the right word, is to make the development attractive from an economic point of view, as well as for an environmental and all the other considerations that go into town planning. But what is it that we haven't been doing? You said we haven't been creating affordable housing. What is it that we, the people and the local governments, should be doing that we haven't been?
14: It, well, affordable housing doesn't get built without subsidy. So um, uh, the um, economics of market rate housing are a bit different than affordable housing. We need r- subsidy resources from uh, state and local and federal government to make them work. Because and it's just so expensive to build. That's right. And it's actually got more expensive to build. Um, we are working on two projects right now that were fully funded by the state back in 2021. Uh, as we were preparing to close, uh, inflation hit, and each of those projects had seven figure gaps put in them. And so we have been working with the state to fill those gaps, uh, but it's become more and more expensive to build. So that's why we're not seeing the start of home built. We're not the affordable start home, the affordable apartments at the scale that we need to. But there's help on the way. Uh, the state is uh, this year, it's um, time for a new housing bond bill. Uh, the housing bond bill creates um, the funding limits for uh, affordable housing and workforce housing production programs for the state that they then use to fund developers like Wayfinders and many others for profit and nonprofit to build more housing and communities across the Commonwealth. The last bond bill was in 2018. It was $1.8 billion. It was the biggest bond bill ever. That's pre all this huge escalation in prices. Um, and what what needs to happen before the end of the session, we need to pass a new bond bill that's forward-looking that gets us not only over the hump of inflation, but that allows us to build more housing. I don't know the answer to this question. My understanding is there's a constitutional provision
3: that requires that bonds not exceed 10% of the overall budget. So is a housing bond bill part of that calculation? It has to be... Uh, coupled with all other bonds and can't exceed ten percent of the yeah budget?
14: it's, a, it's a, that's part of the, the the what confines what can be raised um, uh, what can be put in now these are not there's not going to issue bonds from this is just adding in the funding limits when they do their capital planning for the year they're they're working ag- against that and issuing bonds uh, on an annual basis they may not in the end fund all these programs at these levels uh, but it's a it's a signal to the to developers and to communities that there are resources potential potentially to come here, and allows us to move forward um, and uh, take the risk that we need to take in terms of trying to build more housing in our communities.
3: So President Keith Ferry of Wayfinders, I, I want to ask you this before I turn to Linda, which is uh, there has been uh, percolating this notion of a real estate transition, a transaction fee. Mm-hmm. Um, developers don't like it. Affordable housing advocates love it. And so could you tell us what it is and what the status of it is?
14: Well, there are a few different um, A transfer fee is a, when real estate gets transferred it's an additional fee that's paid uh, um, the, um, the fee then can go into creating a fund that can then fund uh, housing development projects. So de- developers like me like that. <laughs> uh, and it's a local fee that gets set. So it's a local, uh, it's a local option to create this fee. Uh, and so um, it, it, What we need is more resources to create housing, so this is a good opportunity. Towns and um, cities across the Commonwealth can decide whether or not they want to do it or not. It's not a requirement. Uh, but it can add to their CPA funds, or and some may not have them, so it can be in place of them, or municipal housing trust, and other things like that. So it just provides more resources for that. There's a couple of things that are uh, Linda was just saying to me to us that there was a there's a hearing uh, coming up on that. Do you want to
5: talk next about Wednesday. That? So next Wednesday there's a hearing for the uh, transfer tax bill, but also the HERO tax um, bill. Uh, the HERO bill would be a registry of deeds fee, um, an extra fee at the registry of deeds, and that would go to affordable housing development and to climate resiliency projects. So both of those have a hearing next Wednesday.
3: So these transfer fees, like if I, um, if I sell my house for a million dollars, mm-hmm. there's a small, small. assessment mm-hmm. that would uh, add to the buyer's purchase price, um, but that would go into creating...
14: Ability lo- to more f- right a local of. resource to fund uh, more housing development.
1: I'm always, I'm always interest. I'm always interested in uh, what engenders opposition to what seems self-evidently to me as a good idea. How much money are we talking about taxing or in? It's a tax. It's called a fee, fine. What What are we talking about in terms of a? you know, a million-dollar building that sells. How, who is going to pay for it, the buyer or the seller, and how
14: much? Well, it depends how the town sets it up, uh, to, to be candid with you. Uh, we are talking about transfer fees and things like that are generally in the, the 1% to 2% that's range. That's what I was going to say. Um, yep. So we're not talking about something that should, should tank a sale or be something that would limit the, the, so the real estate you, activity. So if you were
1: going to get a million dollars, you'd get, for example, 990000 instead.
14: Right. Um, if you do the
3: math, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, see. I had to do the math. But the a, In the proposal <laughs> that I was looking at mm-hmm. and it's only one Yes. It's just proposals and as you say, Linda Dunlavey is gonna be a, a hearing about it next Wednesday. But um, there's a carve out for poorer communities mm-hmm. who like a lot of them ones around here where housing doesn't sell for that much, so there wouldn't be this add on. Is that right, Linda?
5: Well, towns can still choose to do it, but when in softer real estate markets, that local transfer tax is going to yield a smaller amount of money. And that kind of goes back to what Bill was asking about. Um, developers want to make money, and yet in rural areas of Western Mass and other areas of Western Mass, sometimes economies of scale will create a smaller housing development, so harder to get a profit back in softer markets a lower sales price so that's part of the reason why Keith and me and so many others have been advocating for the housing bond bill to really include a lot of provisions that strengthen our ability to produce housing in western mass
3: will you be testifying at this hearing next uh, wednesday
5: in writing i have a staff retreat tomorrow next wednesday
14: oh, spoken like a true director and how about you keith <laughs> I won't be there, but uh, Linda and I and others of the Western Massachusetts Housing Coalition will be hosting the Lieutenant Governor and the Housing Secretary on October 10th to talk to them about all of these issues. These issues are so important to our communities. We're going to take a break, and when we
3: come back, I want to ask you not just about the young people who are looking for housing. What about the aging population here in Western Mass? We'll be right back.
14: I know phase wrong. I'm a lonely boy. I ain't got a home. I got a voice. You're listening
0: to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo, Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMB. Brought to
6: you by Greenfield Savings Bank, with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties.
0: Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMB.
15: Brantford Marsalis is one of the most influential figures in contemporary music. He led The Tonight Show Band. He's played with Sting and The Grateful Dead. He's done Broadway, classical, but the center of Brantford Marsalis' musical universe is the Brantford Marsalis Quartet. He's bringing the quartet to UMass October 5th from new orleans first family of jazz Branford marsalis saxophonist band leader national endowment for the arts jazz master three-time grammy winner bringing his quartet to the frederick c tillis performance hall this celebrated jazz ensemble is known for its fearless and uncompromising interpretations of a kaleidoscopic range of material original compositions jazz and popular classics get tickets now at the umass fine arts center box office an evening with Branford Marsalis and his quartet, Thursday, October 5th, at UMass Amherst.
9: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
1: Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice, get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department.
5: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
3: We are uh, continuing our conversation with uh, Wayfinder CEO and President Keith Ferry and uh, executive director of the Franklin County Regional Council of Governments, Linda Dunlevy. I want to ask you, Linda, um, there are, there's an aging population. We were talking about it earlier. We would like to attract younger people. We all have that as an aspiration. And how do we do that? But for elders, especially those living on a fixed income, those who don't have large portfolios, they need housing. How big a problem is that? And what can be done to solve it?
5: Uh, it is a big problem. Our, our, Again, our population projections show that more and more of our population will be older. Surveys show that older people want to age in place. They'd like to stay in their home. Oftentimes, though, their home is falling apart around them because they don't have the capacity or resources to keep it up to snuff. So building senior housing is really one way to tackle that. We just finished one in Sunderland, 34 units, was uh, almost immediately oversubscribed and people at the ribbon cutting in tears that they're able to stay in Sunderland and age in place and able to leave the house that was a burden to them and no longer a haven to them.
14: Which then becomes available for other people.
5: Exactly.
14: And just speaking to that burden issue, we shouldn't um, uh, underestimate that burden. We have the the oldest housing stock in the Commonwealth here in the Pioneer Valley. So that means uh, lots of our older homes. I know I live in a 200-year-old home. It needs a lot of work. And so as you can imagine, as you get older, you're on a fixed income. It's very difficult to maintain these homes. So it's important that we see actually not only resources to build more housing, but actually to preserve and rehab the existing housing stock, either for for the seniors who want to continue to live there and age in place or for families who want to move into those homes. Uh, there's a lot of need to improve that housing stock, both uh, on the uh, ownership side and the rental side. So, Keith Ferry, do you find
3: our delegation, that is those people who represent us in the Massachusetts legislature, are they sensitive? Are they informed enough about the needs which you every day talk about in your work?
14: Well, I think, I know Linda and I work to make sure that they are informed and I, and I would say they are engaged. Uh, we're also fortunate to have uh, two um, members of our delegation now on the Housing Committee, the Joint Housing Committee, uh, Senator John Velas and Senator Shirley Arriaga. Um, they, uh, that's great for us. The last legislative session, we had no one on the committee, so there was no voice for Western Mass in, in the Joint Housing Committee. Uh, and actually, um, but also senators and representatives who aren't on that are very engaged. In fact, Senator Comerford just hosted a, uh, a tour of uh, one of the chairs of the Senate chair uh, to come out here, Lydia Edwards. Uh, Linda and I both participated in that and were able to show her. She's an East Boston-based uh, politician who uh, has a great, great interest in affordable housing but didn't know the issues here. So our, our senators, I think, and representatives are doing a good job not only uh, when they're in the State House, but bringing people out here uh, to have important conversations. Um, Representative Dom did the same thing with the, um, the House co-chair of that committee uh, uh, in, in the summer, where she had him here for a, a roundtable with uh, many housing leaders to talk about housing issues in Amherst in particular. And how about you, Linda Dunleavy? You're, are,
3: are people aware of this issue in, in the legislative level and uh, making it the priority that you think it should be?
5: Our legislators, yeah. The Franklin County delegation is great. The Western Mass delegation is great. They really are aware of the issue. They are aware of the challenges. They are working with us to think through what do we need in the housing bond bill, what bills should pass to make housing development easier, and how do we tell the story to Eastern Mass legislators so they understand what we're trying to do and how Western Mass can be a strong contributor to the Massachusetts economy, and to the Massachusetts need for housing.
14: Yeah, and I mean, the way I look at this, Western Mass is an opportunity for the Commonwealth, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity for new investment. We have exceptional uh, educational institutions here. Uh, We have um, infrastructure here. I was was mentioning earlier uh, on the break, uh, our gateway cities have room to grow. These are our cities like Holyoke and Chicopee and Springfield. They're all below their peak population, Holyoke in particular. Maybe you can
3: uh, explain what a gateway city is. A gateway is.
14: city is a kind of a former industrial city um, that, um, in, in this case, most of them have all, there's 26 of them in the Commonwealth. Is a designation made during the, uh, Governor Patrick came up with that uh, term of art uh, to talk about these cities that need reinvestment. Uh, and they can either be something that uh, drags not only that that city down but the the community around it and the Commonwealth, or a place to invest. And this is our time to invest in those places. Uh, and here in Western Massachusetts, we have lots of room to grow, uh, and that can make a huge difference for the economic outcomes for everybody, not only in those cities but in our whole region. You talk about what our delegation
1: is doing in Boston, which I appreciate. What I'd like to know is what their the importance of housing as the solution for an enormous number of societal issues, from homelessness to job creation, that what the studies show, as I understand it, is the one essential piece is housing. And I wish yeah. you would comment no, on that.
14: Sure, I'll add to that health. Health. We saw that during COVID, uh, and we see that today, we're even um, as we're kind of um, figuring out COVID, uh, education outcomes for youth as well. Huge, um, huge difference there that uh, a quality, stable home makes in long-term educational outcomes for families. That's also very well documented. So when you think about making an investment in housing, you're making an investment in all those things. It's an investment in the future. It's an investment in stability for families. It's an investment in opportunity for your community.
1: Yeah, and it's not just spending money on some people who some people claim. Well, why should we help them out? Because it helps everyone.
14: That's right. That's the deal here. Yes, it helps everyone and, and the um, I think we're seeing that more now where people understand the intersectionality of the issue and that's why housing is an above the fold issue today. Uh, it's a it's a it's a pillow talk item, it's a coffee table item, it's a dinner table item because everybody is faced with some housing challenge with the increasing cost of housing, the limits on the housing that we have in our region, the vacancy rates are at historic lows. That's been driving up prices. Um, and, uh, and everybody is is challenged with housing today. Linda Dunlavy,
3: listeners, uh, you guys are cr- incredibly convincing about how important this issue is and how it, it demands our attention. Uh, what can listeners do? Well, how can they learn more about it? What can they actually do to participate and be a factor in helping in this regard?
5: Locally, find out what your local planning board is doing. See if they're looking at changing local zoning to allow accessory dwelling units, to allow infill development, to allow denser... Infill development. Infill development would be in a village center or an urban center where there's a small vacant lot. And does the zoning in your city or town allow that vacant lot to be built? So look, get involved with what the planning board is doing. If zoning is going to your town meeting, a 10-town meeting, vote yes. It requires a two-thirds vote at town meeting, which first requires a quorum at town meeting, which in some places isn't easy to achieve. So get involved.
3: One more time. The hearing is when?
5: Next Wednesday at 11 o'clock.
3: Can people participate in the hearing in a right without having to drive to Boston? Yep. So All
5: hearings now are, can either be in person, via Zoom, or you can submit written testimony.
3: And if your concern is not enough affordable housing in your community, you can let that be known to the commu- committee that's going to be conducting the hearing, right?
5: Yep, these two bills are tools in the housing production toolbox.
3: And who do they write to?
5: Well, that's an excellent question. <laughs> what, what committee is? Find this out before? from your legislators. We will call your legislators and ask. <laughs>
3: that's right. Exactly how you can contribute to uh, by giving written testimony that will help. Keith Ferry, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Every time you do, it's an, such an important issue that affects all of our communities. Linda Dunlavy, thank you for being here. Thank you for everything that you do. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. And remember, like these two, don't just talk the talk. That's all walk the
0: walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
8: Do you love the Literacy fishing, Project swimming, is the place swimming. to go if you but are, are an adult looking to improve your you reading, help, writing, and math skills, water and or if, if you want help preparing for the Whether high school near the and, river, and preparing Miller's, for college.
7: Westfield,
8: Chicapea, to find out about our free classes in your local and
14: Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy
4: Project
6: is the place
9: for you do you use home
0: oxygen do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns no one should smoke in your home there's more oxygen in the air which makes fires burn faster and hotter furniture clothes bedding and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source for more information call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov slash dfs breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely WHMP Northampton and WRSI.